Hello there, friends, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. For this episode, we're hooking up with our old friends in Columbus, Ohio, Chairman Moe's Magic Contradiction, to discuss last week's mega debate in Toronto between Jordan Peterson and Slavoj Žižek on the topic of happiness, capitalism versus Marxism. Now, regular listeners to this show might remember that we had Charlie Umland and Jim Calder on last year as guests for our episode 11 to talk about situationism. That was probably one of the most fun shows that we've ever done on this podcast. And given the spectacle of such an eagerly anticipated uh, debate, uh, between uh, Jordan Peterson and Slavoj Žižek, uh, I thought it would be a good idea to invite them on again for a deep dive not only into the debate itself, but also into what it means for the state of intellectual discourse today. So this is going to be a long episode, and therefore I'll do you, the listener, a favor of keeping this introduction a bit shorter than usual. Charlie and Jim are going to jump in in a minute and uh, provide a little bit of context for how this debate came about. So we can go ahead and dispense with that. But just to provide a little bit of context for this particular episode, I'm lucky to be part of a occasional reading group series uh, with Charlie and Jim. And <clears throat> I think I speak for all of us when I say that we were pretty excited when we heard that this debate was going to be taking place. We knew uh, there would probably be a pretty intense online reaction to it, um, especially uh, from elements of the left that are already antagonistic to Zizek's style and brand of Marxism. So we thought we'd do this show as a way of thinking our way through some of that likely response and also explore uh, some of the disagreements that we have amongst ourselves on some of the main issues arising within the debate, including, uh, but not by any means limited to, the political priority of identity politics for the left. So we'll get started in just a minute, but uh, before we do, I just want to quickly mention another voice uh, rejoining us from episode 11, and that's the voice of Darren Latanik, who graciously offered to step in as producer for this episode on the Columbus side. Darren, on behalf of Jim, Charlie and myself, I do want to express our sincere thanks to you for your time. And you, dear listener, will be hearing him chime in with a few points as we proceed in this episode. So that all said, uh, time to get it started. What's up with this music? I am a philosopher, I like to provoke We live in perverted times, so let me tell you a perverted joke A famous, dirty, horrible joke taking place in 15th century Russia A farmer and his wife walk along a dusty country road A Mongol warrior on horse stops and says I'm gonna rape your wife and you should hold my testicles While I rape your wife so that they will not get dusty When she raped his wife, the Mongol warrior went away The farmer started to laugh and jump with toys, his wife says, hey, how can you be happy? I was just brutally raped. And she says, but I got him. His balls are full of dust. When in reality, we only dirty with us. The balls are those in power. And now comes the dirty conclusion. The point is to cut them off. Now let me warn you, this isn't Macarena, not chicken dance. 
Welcome to the show, everyone. Uh, we have uh, Charlie Umland and Jim Calder joining us, our first ever two-time guests on the show. And we are here this week to talk uh, about the Jordan Peterson-Slavoj Žižek debate that took place last weekend. It was a controversial debate in the eyes of many Žižek uh, had no business engaging uh, Jordan Peterson like this. Jordan Peterson is seen by many on the left to harbor some extremely problematic views. And in challenging him to a debate or in participating in the debate, Zizek was seen effectively as elevating him. So, Charlie, Jim, I just wanted to get started off here uh, with you tonight by asking broadly, you know, uh before maybe we get into the material of the debate itself. Am I framing this right if my basic reaction to this is to be maybe a little bit freaked out that, you know, we, we live in a time or in an age where a man like Jordan Peterson can A, you know, become such an internet sensation uh, and B, that he can command such, I, I don't know how to put it, um, intellectual stature that he would be taken seriously enough to be seen as capable or deserving of a place on the stage with with one of the finest minds of our generation, you know, Slavoj Žižek. Um, a lot of the left commentary in the build-up to this debate was pretty much contemptuous of the very idea of the debate. Uh, so I just want to know what you guys think. Was it was it okay that this debate took place? Was it okay that Žižek would debate Jordan Peterson in the first place? I mean, I think there's better things to worry about than whether this is the debate was an okay thing to do. I feel like the de whole thing with the debate started because uh, Zizek was criticizing Peterson in some of his appearances. So Peterson got on the internet and started a fight with a Zizek Twitter bot. <laughs> that was classic. So, I mean, I, I think, like, if you think about that as the basis of it, I don't see uh, the whole thing as especially elevating... Um, Peterson, who's already super famous, um, maybe maybe even more well known than Z than Zizek to the general populace. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like when you actually when I actually watched the debate, I didn't feel like Jordan Peterson was very elevated by it. I guess is what I'm trying to say because he looked so uh, so 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 not serious as a thinker and uh, and whatnot. I, I would agree with that. And I think there's two things there, too, uh, in your question, Nick, because the, the first part is, you know, as an intellectual, does does Jordan Peterson deserve to be on the stage? It's, it's like, is he qualified enough? And I think that's a, a question we can ask, but I don't think that's what really made people as angry. I think it was more of like the is this giving him a platform or something like that? Um, but. But I don't find a problem with that at all. And I think back to some really great debates I've watched, you know, from history, like um, uh, William F. Buckley and James Baldwin um, is one of the best ones. Um, it, it's not like, you know, when I watch that, I'm not like, oh, wow, they really gave Buckley a platform or something. I mean, public debate is something that... Uh, that you know we might not get enough of anymore or, or at least it's interesting to watch um i'm not sure about either one of those two things <laughs> yeah that's yeah that's pretty fair um and yeah we get i i don't know what i'm saying here like we we don't see the 
you know, we, we don't see things like uh, William F. Buckley's example I keep thinking of, like Firing Line or, uh, right. you know, that was sort of part of a world a long time ago where you would have these intellectuals like come and talk with each other and, and it was about a meeting of ideas. And, and I think it's interesting to watch. So just to move on then, uh, you know, in terms of the debate itself and to try to get into some of the meat of it, uh, uh, Jordan Peterson won the coin toss and, and got us rolling. Um, maybe we should just start with him and some of his ideas. So, you know, obviously Jordan Peterson is known as a defender of the, oh, I suppose you could say natural function of human hierarchy. Uh, he's famous, for example, for the idea that you know, you can see hierarchy in all kinds of species in the natural world, including lobsters, not least. So no surprise then in a way that he would open his comments in the debate, uh, stating that we have to, and I quote, give the devil his due. Uh, Marx was correct, at least to to diagnose the existence of hierarchy under capitalism. And, and here I think was a surprise actually for many, well, at least for me, uh, that Jordan Peterson even went a surprising step further, uh, conceding that Marx may be correct about the existence of class struggle and stating that you can even see equivalent struggles in the natural world. So for example, and I quote, the creatures at the biological bottom do get dispossessed. Uh, nevertheless, says uh, Jordan Peterson, we must refuse the temptation to think that the takeaway lesson of that dispossession is that we must rebel or that we must buck the system. This is where he says Marx was wrong. Profit isn't necessarily theft, or at least if it is theft, that doesn't necessarily mean capitalism is bad. Um, now, of course, we know as good Marxists that Marx himself actually rejected the idea that profit was theft, but and, and there's complex reasons for that. But um, Jordan Peterson's argument is that, you know, despite the obvious limitations that capitalism does place on our lives, the capitalist order has, on the whole, been very beneficial for our species in, in the long run. And here we can sort of get into the quote from the last two minutes of his opening remarks at the 37-minute mark or so, uh, he says the uh, the poor do get richer under capitalism. And the data shows that capitalism has elevated billions out of poverty. So I don't know if you guys want to watch that uh, clip now. So here's, here's a few stats. Here's a few free market stats, okay? Um, from 1800 to 2017, income growth adjusted for inflation grew by 40 times by, for production workers and 16 times for unskilled labor. Um, well, GDP, fact, GDP rose by a factor of about 0.5 from 1 AD to 1800. So from 1 AD to 1800 AD, it was like nothing, flat. And then all of a sudden, in the last 217 years, there's been this unbelievably upward movement of wealth. And it doesn't only characterize the tiny percentage of people at the top who, admittedly, do have most of the wealth. The question is, not only, though, what's the inequality, the question is, well, what's happening to the absolutely poor at the bottom? And the answer to that is, they're getting richer faster now than they ever have in the history of the world. And we're eradicating poverty in countries 
that have adopted moderate free market policies at a rate that's unparalleled. So here's an example. The UN millennial, one of the UN millennial goals to, was to reduce the, the rate of absolute poverty in the world by 50% between 2000 and 2015. And they defined that as $1.90 a day. Pretty low, you know, uh, but you have to start somewhere. Um, we, be, we, we hit that at 2012, three years ahead of schedule. And you might be cynical about that and say, well, it's kind of an arbitrary number, but the curves are exactly the same at $3.80 a day and $7.60 a day. Not as many people have hit that, but the rate of increase towards that is the same. The bloody UN thinks that we'll be out of poverty defined by $1.90 a day by the year 2030. It's unparalleled. And so, so the... So the Rich may be getting richer, but the poor are getting richer too. Well, I, mean, I guess just, I mean, look, th that all strikes me as pretty standard conservative stuff. And, and people who've listened to this show uh, might remember back in episode nine, we had a, a, a scholar on by the name of Brian Skoulis, you know, who, who gave us a number of the kind of boilerplate ready-made responses to those kind of arguments. And, but, but here's my question, you know, like there's a lot of people reviewing this debate who are up in arms that Zizek really kind of didn't do his job here. You know, as, as they would argue, the job here was to kind of take a, a leading figure of the alt-right to school, you know, to school him um, on, on Marxism and to not let him get away with kind of banal, simplistic, Tanky bashing. That was a uh, you know Benjamin Studebaker's argument in in Jacobin this week, um, and and I think you know it's just interesting. I want to ask you guys about this. You know Zizek didn't really seem that interested in defending Marxism, at least not in the early parts of the debate. I mean it, it, later on, halfway through or thereabouts, he does start to defend Marx, but mostly right now up front, he's arguing that we're kind of heading towards a catastrophe, but there wasn't a lot of Marxism on offer. So I was just curious about your take, like... Well, I mean, I think uh, I think we we all agree and understand that the the poor don't get actually get richer under uh, capitalism, at least not in the sense that uh, that Peterson's describing. Um, and of course, I mean, uh, like, like you said, there's a lot of uh, everyone many people know the correct the responses to all these uh things that um peterson brought up which is it's funny because it, it kind of shows how lazy uh he was being with his arguments um which isn't surprising but i, I think i mean you know like he's coming from a place where he thinks poverty is a state of nature so uh, I'm not sure how um yes it's the zero it's the zero point of history right that you know everything any anything that moves us further out of that zero point is better right exactly these people that are have now been elevated after uh, out of poverty by making a dollar and 91 cents a day you know uh, presumably in in peterson's mind there was a time when they made one cent a day and they've been so helped by capitalism look at this now but I, obviously that's that's um really a historical way to look at it i don't know i I think I think Zizek did drop the ball. That's my opinion. He failed to to refute any of these really basic claims that uh, that your liberals and right wingers throw out about capitalism. And I think that even if that wasn't what he wanted to talk about, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of actual working people that care about this stuff and that that have a 
uh, um, uh, a, uh, a at least some understanding of Marxist principles, and he's not he's not uh, backing those people up. So, yeah, I, I it's tough for me because I I didn't expect him to. I didn't expect him to address this stuff for some reason. I didn't um, think this is what the debate would be they're not, <laughs> structured like, or, you know, uh, topic. the topic of the debate would would be manifest this way at all. They're, you know, neither of them are economists. Um, and if it gets into one of those, like, arguing about different statistics, because, you know, in a debate like that, it's like Zizek puts his statistics out and then Peterson has his. And it's like, which is better, like, you know, Piketty versus what the World Bank says or something like I, I just don't see either of them really doing that, um, it, which, you know, maybe they should have done more um, or I don't know. So would you expect Zizek to try and explain like something through the labor theory of value or something like I, I don't know. I, You're not wrong. I just, you know. Yeah, no. So, I mean. It's fair to criticize him about it. I'm not. Um, I'm not even going that far. I'm just saying, like, he missed an opportunity to to dispel a, a few of the most obviously incorrect notions. Right, uh, Charlie. You know, you sent me. Uh, uh, you sent us uh, a piece from the L.A. Times blog uh, called "The Philosophical Salon." Excuse me, not L.A. Times, Los Angeles Review of Books. Um, by uh, a pair of scholars named Elrin Barel and Stephanus Roimpus. Uh, I'm not sure if those are the correct pronunciations, but um, you know their argument was pretty good on this. I thought you know their their whole take was like, look, um, in in this kind of a debate, you know, if if you are uh, addressing an audience, half of which is composed of Jordan Peterson fanboys, and they as you know, have been filled uh, to the brim by Jordan Peterson's YouTube channel with arguments about the relentless political correctness and scolding nature of the contemporary left, the cultural Marxist left. The last thing you want to do in a, a debate with Jordan Peterson is uh, go through a reading of the Communist Manifesto line by line and start putting everything in context and 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 showing why Jordan Peterson is is incorrect in his reading of the manifesto or or has a bad reading of of Marx. Instead, what you want to do is go on the attack. Um, you know, uh, you 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 want to ultimately try to pull uh, the, the rungs out from underneath Jordan Peterson's worldview. And and I think in in the kind of comic calm, non-scolding, uh, non-finger-wagging nature uh, of Zizek's approach, um, there was a real possibility. And I, and I think he was actually quite successful in, in just basically humanizing Marxism, showing that it's not this scolding identity politics stereotype that Jordan Peterson seems to think it is, that there's much more to the approach. It's much more cynical. It's much more joyous if, if it can be both of those things at the same time. Um, and, um, and, and way more sort of, if you will, humanistic than um, a lot of Jordan Peterson's otherwise unfamiliar defenders might have previously thought. Well, real quick, Peterson even admitted as much when he's like, he, like, how can you be this character? That's not what I think of a Marxist, you know, like he thinks Marxists are like, you know, wearing the Mao suit and 
marching in straight lines to the factory every day or something like in his crazy imagine of communism. And Zizek by himself sort of refutes that. And I think that is that was something that happened. Um, we can talk about whether that was good or not or how much it, it accomplished. But but yeah, I think that was obviously part of it and something Peterson even mentioned himself. Sure. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying there's no value to disarming that. I'm just saying um, to the extent that's that Zizek was able to actually undercut <clears throat> and attack Peterson's worldview, I would have liked it to be a little less subtle. I thought it was subtle, it, which which I, I, and again, like I get what you're saying. I'm not trying I'm not trying to say we he should have gone out and started attacking him over his his opposition to the the you know pronouns bill or whatever it is i'm just saying like he just he didn't he didn't engage um peterson on any of his misapprehensions about marx um in any meaningful way i don't think i think there was only sort of one moment and it's when zizek sort of got most animated or angry and we've heard zizek talked about this before of this idea of sort of cultural marxism being like a uh, myth or like doesn't even make sense or he's like where are the Marxists like what are you talking about oh yeah he was way more concerned about the idea that we're that that uh that uh Peterson paints academics with too broad a brush when it comes to this stuff absolutely um, yeah maybe we can go right to which, that actually that's gonna be um yeah it's the 150 I don't mark any I don't uh, who who is the Marxist here well, show, show me any big names of political correctness. Well, I think they they fear like a good vampire fears garlic. Any, this is why they are already the one who is not a Marxist, but at least approaches economic topic, Bernie Sanders. He is already under attack as white male and all that stuff and so on. I simply, I simply, uh, what, uh, my problem would be with this one. What you describe as postmodern neo-Marxism, where is really the Marxist element in it? They are for equality. Sorry, where? They are for equality at these cultural st struggles, uh, proper names, how do we call each other? Do you see in them, in political correctness and so on, any genuine will of to change society? I don't see it. I think it's a hyper-moralization, hyper-moralization, which is a silent admission of a defeat. Well, That's my problem. Why do you call, give me, no, it's, again, it's not a rhetorical question yeah, for politely saying you are an idiot, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's simply, I would like to know, because you, and I like this often, when you attack somebody, you said aggressively, and what should, read more. Tell me whom. So I'm asking you now, not read more. I don't advise you. But who are? Give me some names. So yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, if you if you take a look at the uh, part of the debate where they're giving the 10 minute rejoinders, um, I think you do definitely start to see Zizek offer finally something like a defense of Marx, and and I think that's interesting because it's also here that you hear Zizek say that he's basically more of a Hegelian than a Marxist. And, and and probably it is. I think you're right, guys. I think that's the most dramatic moment of the debate. And I, I, I think Zizek really challenges the argument that, that Jordan Peterson is probably best known for. And that is, of course, you know, that 
academia, society has become dominated by a culture of political correctness and that at the vanguard of this are a, a cult of cultural Marxists. Um, he quotes um, some data here from something called the Heterodox Academy. And I actually went and looked that up and it's an organization of scholars committed to the promotion of something they call viewpoint diversity. And that sounds like a euphemism for something to me anyway. But, but <laughs> the data is that 25% of uh, social scientists in the United States identify as Marxists. And, and of course, to this, Zizek responds that if you look at real Marxists in academia, you know, they're totally marginalized figures. You know, they, they, it's hard for them to get published. They don't get taken seriously by uh, mainstream scholarship. Okay. So, first of all, I think we should accept the fact that Marx is very influential on the social sciences in general. Yeah, of and course. That, and that the Marx's influence on the <coughs> social sciences is, in a lot of ways, very very um, <clears throat> separate from what what Jordan, Jordan Peterson means when he says Marxism. Does that make sense? Well, that- well, absolutely. And also Zizek's point is that, you know, what you might see a Marxist and he's like, these are just kind of liberals. Right. Right. Um, They're liberals who, you know, you know, think about things like social reproduction theory that 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 uh, was a, a big gift to the social sciences for Marx. So uh, remember, remember, Peter's- also, you know, obviously the heterodox academy or the he- whatever that is, is, is sounds cool. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> it's pretty obvious what that is. So I, I, I don't uh, divorce dots. I, I, I don't blame. Yeah, right. I don't blame Zizek for just for just uh, letting that one pass completely because uh, that's that's a and yeah. There's there's some interesting things we could talk about. I mean, like we could talk about the idea of recuperation here or something. Of course, he didn't go into that, but what's it mean to be a Marxist in different contexts or call yourself a Marxist right. in different contexts? Like. Um, I, I understand why they didn't go into that, but I think that's something you could think about there. There's also the, um, you know, Jordan Peterson's whole narrative, which he which he spoke out was that, you know, Marxism was discredited, and then so people switched the economic model and they started applying the theory to social problems, and then right. it became politically correctness or something. And like, I I don't that even that doesn't make any sense. I don't even know what to like really say to that. And like, I I feel like. Did Zizek refute that? They didn't talk about he that. He didn't really they, refute it, like in in the face of it. But but it definitely, I think some of the things that Zizek was saying was at least created a context where that whole narrative doesn't make any sense. Well, let's actually, which is good, guys. Let's break that down for a little bit because I think that's really interesting, and I, I have a question for you all on, on this. So, Jordan Peterson, you're right, Jim. Uh, sort of refers to this as the sleight of hand of postmodernism, right? And it's 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 this idea that somehow Foucault and Derrida retained the basic structure of Marxism's argument that 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 history is a struggle between those with power and those without. And and Zizek does really come back quite hard here on this. You know, he says, you know, if we look at Foucault, for example, his target was Marxism and his revolutionary goal, if we can speak of one, was to, you know, celebrate micro resistances. And, and in a way, you can see Zizek basically setting up the point that Foucault was kind of a symptom of, of 
what we call today the new left. You know, uh, now from Zizek's point of view, this is not necessarily productive because what it does is it sort of encourages people instead of seeing themselves as a collective subjectivity, instead to see themselves as as a sort of a a, a vast uh, patchwork quilt of micro subjectivities. Um, it, that are all marginal in their nature and and you know to to sort of fragment all these struggles in a way that they can't really see commonality in their plight uh and and therefore sort of leave them with really the only sort of last resort which is to kind of enjoy their marginality you know to enjoy their burden to enjoy their pain instead of actually doing about it so there's actually a really good quote here at at the 154 mark or so and what i want to ask you guys if we can listen to it is a question that's maybe a bit unusual and and, and it's this you know as i know you guys are very profoundly well i know you guys are well read in um the situationists and Situationists are often understood as being adjacent to postmodernists. So is it surprising for you in this quote to hear Zizek throwing, effectively throwing postmodernism under the bus? I mean, I could definitely see why he would read Foucault the way he reads Foucault, but it seems to me maybe Zizek is being a bit disingenuous. I mean, if anyone would know, he would, right? Um, That uh, part of the critique made by the so-called postmodernists or post-structuralists is the need to re-embed experts, expertise in democratic systems. You know, and, and Zizek already has in the debate at this point applauded Marx for venerating the Paris Commune and for warning us against succumbing to the seduction of the sort of more teleological reading of Marxism. And I find these all very Foucauldian points. So if we can listen to that quote, I mean, it's, it's kind of strange to hear Zizek make this turn. Just one sentence and then he, you can reply. It's so strange that you mentioned, for example, somebody like Foucault, who uh, for me, uh, his, are you aware that his main target was Marxism? Okay, for him represented in, in uh, he, and his, his game was never a radical change, but, and this is what I don't like in this, what you call postmodern, let's not call them Marxist, but revolutionaries. It's this, enjoying your own self-marginalization. The good thing is to be on the margin, you know, like not in the center and so on and so on. It almost made me nostalgic for uh, old communists who at least had the honesty to say, no, we don't enjoy our marginal position. We want to do something central power. I find so disgusting. It's no, this. it's no wonder you don't get invited to lots of places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you, you, you know, you know uh, Foucault for me embodies this logic of revolution, and by revolution he meant any social change series, that small resistances and so on, small marginal places of resistance and so on and so on. Well, I mean, I guess he's talking about something. He's talking about, I mean, I'm not sure why he feels like he should reject Foucault or whatever, but he's talking about a, a, a very specific idea, which is this idea of of uh, sort of uh, margin, the celebration of marginalism, right? I'm not sure. I haven't. I'll be honest. I haven't read enough Foucault to to, 
to uh, fully uh, um, understand Foucault's celebration of marginalism, if that's uh, something that he uh, celebrates as fully as Zizek claims. No, but you guys are very well read in situationism and situationists are often understood as being postmodern adjacent, if, if I can put it that way. Um, and so, well, you, yeah, but you know, we don't think that way about them, obviously. Uh, no, but yeah, even still, I, I think there's a, a sense, uh, reading the situationists that the, um, it, the separation, uh, of, uh, human society from control over sort of decisions about allocating productive energy is, 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 is is not something that just happens in the factory. It's it's something that happens throughout uh, society, and they're just as critical of the Soviet system as they are of the capitalist system on this count. Um, they would uh, be closely associated with a moment in the history of the left where you know the youth and other fragments of society sort of asserted themselves as subjective positions that have you know a valid claim to. Uh, a voice um, in in a, in a historical moment that otherwise seems to be dominated by capitalists and those who would sort of set themselves up as the expert vanguard of the proletariat. You know, so there's 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 a there's a a, a strong sense um, in that moment in history that that democracy is lacking, and uh, if, if the revolutionary moment in the late '60s is about anything, it's about the need for uh, you know the, a greater set of voices, a broader set of voices to be asserted. I guess I'm just kind of cautious that that at this moment in the debate, it seems Zizek is, um, you know, uh, being a bit disingenuous. He knows full well that the story of 1968 is much more complex than uh, a bunch of uh, identity-centered young people um, you know, despondent from the collapse and failure of the Soviet Union, um, suddenly decided to take over academia and um, decided that, uh, you know, the, 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 the progression of politics henceforth uh, would be about exploring the various ways that we are a white Western male dominated society. Well, you know, this is similar to the, um, oh yeah, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. I just think that it's really tough to talk about this because for one, Peterson has this crazy version of postmodernism that includes like Marxists and liberals and SJWs and all these people. Um, it's really broad and it's really encompassing um for peterson and obviously we know the history of someone like foucault's influence on uh, american academia or something is actually like pretty complicated especially when it gets in how he relates to serious marxists and how he relates to sort of maybe like a more liberal cultural theorist place how he relates to postmodernists um it, it's <sighs> Yeah, to I mean, it's one thing to just sort of, and I think what he's doing is trying to attack Jordan Peterson's narrative that pushes all these people together. I don't think he does a good job of actually explaining how you know P- 
people like Foucault fit into actual Marxist thought. I mean, right. he doesn't. I don't think he gets there really at all. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Well, I, yeah, that was it, my it does. Uh, you know, well. I'm starting to get a sense that what one of the things that we probably should generally maybe critique Zizek for in this debate, uh, because I think it relates to a lot of the things we've talked about so far, is the idea that Peterson has just an absolutely abysmal idea of history <laughs> and, a, and essentially a completely made up version of how yeah. we can't, we got to the place where we are today. Right. I think completely made up um, is a good way to say it. So, and, and I think one of the things that, you know, when I, when we were talking about Zizek not challenging him on the Soviet union, on the, you know, quality of, you know, whatever the, the outright evilness of the Soviet Union or whatever. I think we, and with the Foucault again, and this uh, question about mar marginalization and oppressed people, I think again, we, he completely uh, refuses to sort of uh, attack the complete ahistorical nature of Peterson's argument. He lets all the, all of that sort of slide every time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's now that, now that we're going back and thinking and talking about this again, is a sort of a pattern I'm seeing repeat itself. Um, not, not to, not to spoil the ending of the, of this uh, podcast. <laughs> well, do, do you guys think, and this is something I'm really critical about Peterson a lot of the times is, you know, he's it, so many of his critiques actually like only even sort of makes sense in the world of academia. Like he confuses the world of academia with like the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, you know, everyone's just so politically correct all the time. You can't do anything like, like, you know, Jordan, there's places where people aren't politically correct. Yeah, you should get you a know? real, you should get a real job, buddy. Yeah, exactly. But I almost felt, felt Zizek was sort of, at least sort of going down to that ground with them because, you know, if we, we want to talk about Foucault again, there's a huge difference between, Foucault's actual writings and maybe how that's taken by Marxists that between how Foucault's been read and, and become like a, you know, pillar of certain parts of academia. And I think that a lot of people can talk about misreadings of Foucault, things like that. So are we even talking about Foucault's actual writings or are we talking about the sort of like lightweight liberal Foucaultian professor or something mm -hmm. who might actually do some of the things that annoyed Jordan Peterson. That's really different. Mm -hmm. Those are two really different things and they're very conflated. And I think that's happens when you don't really take the difference between like the real, I don't want to say the real world, but academia and then like the rest of the world. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, and most people in the real life don't celebrate their marginalization. Uh, maybe they do in a, some sort of, uh, sort of Lacanian ideolo uh, ideological sense, but, um, or Freudian sense. But I, I don't think that, um, I think it, when you see people s sort of speaking to their marginalization, it's always to say like, you know, it's often with anger. Yeah. Fuck you. I don't want to be on the yeah. margins anymore. Yeah. And that's what, you know, that's something that I so, think Peterson actually should hear. Yeah, I think it, it's celebrating marginalization is kind of a ridiculous idea. I think that's all that I wanted to say. I can, can you can you elaborate I mean, a little bit on that, Darren? Like, I, what, well, what's ridiculous exactly? I think um, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of inserting myself here because I don't have the background that you guys have. Producer but, Darren. Yeah, but I, I I think the idea of that notion that. I think that's kind of the crux of what he's saying with all this political correctness is that people are sort of weaponizing their identity as a way to celebrate some sort of victimization. Um, and 
I, like he's yeah, seeing this he, as like a political people like latching onto their marginalized identity as a way to um, gain more political power. I guess. Um, sh- sure. I mean, isn't and what if you what isn't if now what the complaint about virtue signaling is more or less? Yeah, and virtue signaling could be a real thing. Like, yeah. I, I, it's not that I doubt that that's a real I, thing. But I just want to say I do think Zizek really thinks that this celebration of the mar of of marginalization, uh, self marginalization, is actually a thing. I don't think he. I don't think he's yes, he just implying. It. I think he really does he think does. that. I, so I just wanted to. Oh we, yeah, you're right. Just it, to be clear, and so does Peterson, yeah. right? And so like that's why, that's why it would have been nice to see. You know, Peterson's all about sort of self actualization and all this stuff. So I mean, you could do something just as simple as maybe this isn't the perfect example, but it's like, you know, Peterson's minds. Everyone just sitting there whining or something. Like, what, what about like look at the Black Panther like food programs or something like this? Like people get angry. People are asserting their agency. They're not just sitting in their room crying about this. And this is true of all sorts of marginalized groups. And, you know, it's not like Peterson wants to hear from them. You know, no, he's, no, they're he's not worried. Su- again, they're not supposed to complain about this. He's um, Yeah, he's worried they're going to make someone else uncomfortable or something and, and destroy family values and then not appreciate their a dollar and 90 cents a day or something. Right. You so know? it's pretty clear that when these two guys talk about this one thing, they're actually talking about two different things, right? Yes. Yeah, in some ways. Like, absolutely. Like Jordan Peterson saying, like, shut up, go get a job or something, you know, whatever. So well, he's, whatever his yeah, he's self-helpy yeah. version of that. Zizek saying, like, no, this is actually like a a psychological trap that you set for yourself. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you should band together and demand power. Right. Right. Which is also what Peterson tells his weird people, right? Like not band together. I mean, he's such an individualist, but it's like, you know, clean your room. That's like the, the first step to power, right? Sort of, right? Like it's first step to agency. Um, and obviously they have super different ideas about how you get to agency, but. Well, we could talk about the moment in which the where Zizek was actually looking good, where he was saying like, "Where I mean, he, he looked good throughout it. I think good generally, but like where he was was really actually sort of making points that that we all think he should have been making, which is when he was talking about it, like, why is it always this individual thing? Why are you just working on yourself? Like, what's wrong with working on society?" And I think um, that Peterson's response to that was just incredibly telling. Which is that he thinks it's magic that by working on yourself you will improve society through mm-hmm. I don't know magic or or whatever his version of magic is uh, evolutionary biology or something. Yeah, it's not and it's not clear. Is. I mean, he even says that you know like you make th- a decision th- and that decision is another decision then that decision affects your family and it's not just good for your family but then right everything else right you make a yeah. decision making the right decision it was, it was kind of a vague rightness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. Um, Let's let's maybe take it up from from there because uh, I think uh, you've actually sort of set up, guys, um, a very important uh, challenge or obstacle now in the conversation where we actually, I think, must confront the message, the argument that Zizek was actually trying to to bring to this debate, and uh, I don't know that. I can articulate this very well, but uh, it seems to me that it is uh, a contribution that has been completely ignored in a lot of the commentary in, in well, in, in the commentary that I've come across this week uh, so far. Um, and, and that is, of course, that, um, you know, we all, uh, no matter which group we might be, uh, religious, are secular conservatives 
are identity politics liberals, multicultural liberals, um, need in order for our political coherence to be sustained, um, some kind of other, some kind of enemy. And um, this is the challenge Zizek wants to sort of put down for us. I don't think he has the answers. He doesn't claim to have the answers. But it, 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 in a complicated sense, what he's saying is, yes, we all do need as a species to function politically some kind of common cause. But what does this mean, right? On the one hand, we need a common definition of happiness, right? Now, there's a lot of people saying Zizek and Peterson didn't talk much about happiness in this debate. I completely disagree. If you listen carefully, they're talking about it all the time. Um, but on the other hand, that notion of happiness, that common definition of happiness is not going to come from God or from science or from any naturalistic conception of, of, uh, of the need for hierarchy in nature, you know, whether it's from the lobsters or what have you, right? Um, now, if we can skip to the 42-45 time marker, uh, we're going to have a quote where we hear Zizek talking about, yeah, we're going to have a quote where Zizek talks about how modernity means that, yes, we need to carry the burden, but the main burden is freedom itself. Qualifications. First, since we live in a modern era, we cannot simply refer to an unquestionable authority to confer a mission or task on us. Modernity means that, yes, we should carry the burden, but the main burden is freedom itself. We are responsible for our burdens. Not only are we not allowed cheap excuses for not doing our duty, duty itself should not serve as an excuse. We are never just instruments of some higher cause. Once traditional authority loses its substantial power, it is not possible to return to it. All such returns are today a postmodern fake. Does Donald Trump stand for traditional values? No, his conservatism is a postmodern performance, a gigantic ego trip. In this sense of playing with traditional values, of mixing references to them with open obscenities, Trump is the ultimate postmodern president. In, if we compare Trump with Bernie Sanders, Trump is a postmodern politician at its purest, while Sanders is rather an old-fashioned moralist. So, yeah, let, let me, um, if I can just comment on that. So, you know, I think regardless of whether you're Jordan Peterson or any kind of traditional Marxist, right, that's going to be a very strange thing to put in your opening remarks when you're rebutting someone who's just been attacking the Communist Manifesto, right? There's no defense of Marxism there. Indeed, in a couple of minutes' time, you're going to, at the 46-minute mark, you're going to hear uh, Zizek talking about godless Stalinist communists as, as being sort of e even worse than Trump in some ways because for them everything was permitted because they perceived themselves as the direct instrument of their divinity. And so in all 
sort of sense then, in every sense, uh, these modern subjectivities are, are not much different than religious fanatics. Um, today's identity politics equally, as uh, Zizek goes on to argue, uh, re- reproduce the same kind of thing because even though they, you know, renounce their privilege and renounce their Eurocentrism, um, they take a kind of a pleasure in what, uh, and I, this is, uh, Zizek frames it as pleasure of renunciation itself, right? Where, where multicultural liberals, um, sort of renounce their own rootedness, renounce their own, origins and thereby set themselves up as the universal subjects, you know, that that basically they are the ones in, in the final instance allowed to be the arbiters of the nature of politics itself, you know, so politics becomes about identity and literally nothing else. Now, it it seems to me that this kind of gets to the crux of, of the matter for Zizek. He's talking about the nature of politics itself. He's actually challenging us to agree with Jordan Peterson in an odd way, but in a very important way to recognize that while Jordan Peterson himself kind of misses the point, you know, that 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 he's right but wrong at the same time, because for Jordan Peterson, the answer lies in a kind of a nostalgic memory of a time when hierarchy was respected and men were men and women were women. Um, what what uh, Zizek is arguing is that we the challenge before us is to try to find the common cause that binds us together, but without accepting this universal position, right? So I think that's the question is where does that leave us? You know, uh, if, if, if we're rejecting identity politics and, and all these other forms of modern politics, what, what, what are we left with? Well, you know, communism is the ideology of personal responsibility. And I think that's one of Zizek's, uh, sort of strongest general ideas is that it's actually harder to be free than we all give it credit for um that's a classic i think thing we all see with uh you know especially with the alt-right like they do have this idea that if you get rid of like libertarians if you get rid of government freedom just blooms or something uh, if if we get rid of political correctness then we have free flow of ideas or something um and i think that's a that's some of their worst thinking. It's like some of the most ridiculous things that especially people on this sort of alt-right or light alt-right get towards. And I think Ziza completely understands this. I I also, I don't know, I don't want to get this off topic, but I also don't totally reject identity politics. Like there's no. parts of like virtue signaling or something like that. Like there's some context, um, where in sort of liberal identity politics, like I think Zizek does a really great job critiquing that. But on the other hand, like there there are really powerful examples that people would throw into the idea of the large basket of identity politics that I think are are important and totally reasonable. And I actually thought he did a terrible, terrible job with that. I'm sorry to interrupt you guys. I just had a That's question. Right. Well, Nick was talking earlier. Do you I, I felt like that Jim kind of to what you were saying I, I felt like Zizek sort of accepted which something that I think is could be a little bit of like a caricature of this this like liberal sanctimonious arbiter of of morality um, I don't know how to put that but I, other than like that's that hasn't been my experience and I don't know um, it and obviously you guys are in the you know 
political realm more is I'm Jordan Peterson is dealing with like creating caricatures and creating almost conspiracy theories. And I feel like Zizek didn't challenge that caricature and I, which I think it is kind of a caricature. Because, Does that make sense? Yeah. Because there is a conspiracy for Zizek, uh, partially here. And if you, um, uh, sort of follow along, um, he does make this point um, around the 49 minute mark um, where he starts talking about how liberals and liberal multiculturalists basically uh, believe that if we all just simply acknowledged our situatedness in a field of politics constituted by identity, we'd all be just fine. You know, and this is the ultimate liberal position, of course, that there are no secret stakes to politics. The problem is simply misunderstanding and misunderstanding alone. Right. And then Zizek drops the hammer. Right. And it's it's so important that we acknowledge this. Right. Because I think it's something Jordan Peterson wouldn't expect and likely wouldn't agree with because it falls back on him that, you know, and, and he brings in this definition from Hegel of evil here. Right. So liberal society is evil, according to Hegel's definition of the term, because it cannot avow its own role in creating the ideological conditions that led to Trump. Right. By, in other words, by saying or by reducing politics solely to identity, that, you know, you have left nowhere for. And I'm not, Zizek doesn't say this, but I'm sort of filling in the blanks for him here a little bit on my own, right? That, that say, for example, thereby rising out of the public domain, um, any grievance, the legitimacy of any grievance by, say, white Western men who might be working class, for example, uh, by writing out of the equation, the legitimacy of their speech, you have effectively left them with nowhere else to go, right? Except, except to the open arms of Trump. And, and, you know, I just, I, it's, it's important that we connect these two ideas because just a moment ago, we were talking about the enjoyment that people of marginal identities, or at least people who advocate identity politics, draw from the renunciation of their own positionality, right? You know, that, that the, 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 you know, the, 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 the woke white male, right, renounces himself and says, I have nothing to say. I will simply amplify the voices of black women or gay people or quadriplegics or what have you, right? So, you know, you, you have this kind of, on, on the one hand, that sort of um, enjoyment. And on the other hand, the very obvious way in which that enjoyment is perceived as um, incredibly cynical by those other white people who have material marginality to contend with. And I think Zizek is really trying to sort of get us to sort of cop on to the quiet complicities between identity politics and the imperatives of neoliberalism in that sense. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, so like one of the interesting problems that you see with this identity, uh, the idea of identity politics is that almost as soon as uh, anyone started talking about identity politics, it kind of became generally in a sort of uh, 
common sense sense to understand that people define their own identities themselves. Um, and I think that that is uh, a big misconception about how identity works in general. I think it becomes a straw man argument. Uh, and I and I think I think like one thing we've learned and one of the the real sort of actual existing dangers of identity politics. Um, uh, uh, not to discount the enjoy this sort of juissance thing that Zizek really wants to talk about is that it's that white supremacists are the most. Uh, effective <laughs> identitarians. I was going to say that, and like they, they're they're the ones that have weaponized identity politics far more than any 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 sort of uh, any sort of um, whatever you know. Yeah, but, and what but, is but, the but Trump presidency? But guys, the, if I could just jump, if I could just jump in, if I could just jump in there, I I, I want to say that the the white supremacists are, I think, from Zizek's perspective. Um, reaping a harvest that they didn't sow you know it they they didn't plant the seeds of this they're they're just sure they did no they didn't no, who, no neoliberalism did who defined black identity in the first place but like i i guess we have to like white supremacy and neoliberalism are are in many ways totally connected with each other right like i don't i don't necessarily see those things as being in conflict just as like the the Trump presidency, like again, like, I, and I'm, you know, a lot of people like Trump for a lot of different reasons, but a lot of people love it because it's like it's this joy of being sort of marginalized. But then you win. Like that's the difference with white supremacists is they love being marginalized. They love complaining. They love crying. Um, but then often they win in the end and get what they want too, which is really different than what happens to some people. Of course. So. Um, because, because especially in larger contexts and like, you know, maybe again, the Academy is a little different or something, but like it, it's, it's, um, it, I, I find the, the white supremacists, especially like the Trump, the Trump part of, it, it's just a different part of identity politics. And, and I don't know if you can say that, um, like did, did some of the liberal, um, ideas about identity politics help pave the way for Trump? Like, yeah, if you look at it, like it's certain time periods you can kind of see some of that happening um at the same time but, like, but for, like jim, for example jim, the jim nobody is saying that uh the white lash to borrow a phrase right um was caused by identity politics it's not it's it's a it's a it's caused by two things it's caused by the condescending universalism of identity politics to be sure partially but the other problem, of course, is that since the 1970s, we have been living in a neoliberal era, which has um, left increasingly working class people, many of whom are white, um, on the economic margins of society, and effectively being told constantly in the media that they are the privileged, right? And it, it, it behooves us, I think, to, to take it seriously, you know, that, that this isn't simply the hillbillies' revenge or, um, you know, the basket of deplorables um, simply having incorrect ideas about the nature of politics. Again, that is the core multiculturalists' conceit in all of this. And they're wrong, right? Because they don't uh, have the ability to understand that politics is a much bigger field than that of identity. I, I, I don't think identity politics is is necessarily wrong, 
in the points that it makes about the world, but certainly it's wrong in limiting politics solely to the terrain of identity. Well, you know, no disagreement there. Yeah. Um, but also, are we putting are we putting white identities solely in like the white working class or something? Because that's something I really disagree with either. Sure, I don't. No, think I'm the- not. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that it is. Um, you know, if we want to understand uh, Zizek's argument that uh, identity politics is evil. Uh, that liberal society is evil, it's because it cannot avow its own role in uh, bringing about the conditions of possibility for President Trump, right? I mean, how do we have President Trump? That is that is a, a question Zizek wants us to wrestle with, right? And it's the same um, hypocrisy that he's drawing attention to when, and I, I, I'm about to hit a trigger button here, I appreciate, but, you know, he, he does bring it up in the debate uh, when he says there's a lot of democratic pressure today to uh, embrace the concept of open borders. And he uh, argues that this is a kind of policy that can fit all too neatly with the imperatives of neoliberalism because, why? Because it allows us in the end as activists for open borders to jump up and down about our virtue, our our tolerance of migrants, our tolerance of politically persecuted homosexuals, etc. You know, here in the West, while, while ultimately doing nothing about the plight of, and I'm more or less quoting here, persecuted homosexuals in places like Congo, etc., where, of course, conveniently, we get the coltan that goes in our mobile phones, you know. So, you know, it's just the kind of, um, again, you know, the fact that identity politics cannot see anything outside of the field of identity as political, right? It, 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 it has to sort of perpetually be coming back to the question of thought. I just don't think you can you can reduce all... Uh Identity politics. I mean, I guess like we could talk about the definition, but you can't reduce all of it to virtue signaling. And I think Peterson's like a great example. Like Peterson, like which they didn't talk about at all, but like like the issue with pronouns or something. That's a really easy thing for people to talk about, like an act that that has nothing to do with material conditions or something. But a big idea of of making it like. And correct me if I'm wrong, but a big idea of them making it sort of a legal thing was because of like workplace workplace harassment. Essentially, like it is harassing if someone keeps purposely misgendering you at work or something, and that's actually affecting your material conditions. Um, and this is something that Peterson doesn't get at all. And Peterson, in fact, actually mischaracterizes people who might just be trying to, you know, work through their lives, assert agency in their lives. And he, he, mis, he mischaracterizes all of them into a character of virtue signaling, you know, college student or something. And I think, I think that's bullshit. And I think like, and I, I think that's the part that when Zizek sort of doesn't explain exactly what he's talking about with identity politics or political correctness or things like that. It can make it like that. That was the most disappointing part to me because um, I think that's, even if it's not the root of everything, it's still a symptom. It's still something people face. And, and the way he came off was that this is, yeah, this is all, if you didn't, and I don't think Zizek actually feels that way, but if you just sort of watch this debate, I would, I would, think that he, he almost agrees with Peterson that this is all just a big virtue signaling, yeah. you know, 
first world problem or something like that. When of course that's not true. But I think the or maybe just, I don't know. People just to be might clear, disagree. Just to be clear, I I I'm not saying I I I, I don't I don't want to make more of this. Um, but just just to be clear about it, I I don't think Jordan Peterson would appreciate being told that his own political program uh, and the people, of course, that flock to him as those who uh, reject political correctness, as those who sort of seek to tear down the walls of, of multicultural liberal academia, uh, that, th- that, those, that, that those people and, and their views are symptomatic of a regressive turn within liberal society itself. I mean, they, they, they would argue that liberal society is regressive, but they would not uh, sort of want to be understood as, um, you know, Zizek is basically arguing that, that their um, movement is a symptomatic movement, that it's, they, ha- they don't have as much free choice in this as they thought they did. You know, their views are not necessarily their own. Uh, their views are not necessarily authentic. They are views that have emerged in reaction to changing sociological, material, and ideational conditions. And, and as such, they have a history. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, they're idealists. What do you want from them? <laughs> right. What do you, you know, what are you going to do? I guess I, I didn't totally you, understand you your response. When they, don't, when they don't understand history at all... How are they supposed to understand the nuances of how this stuff actually manifests itself in the sort of moving picture of of history as it develops? And, and I felt like Jordan, like Cizek was happy to explain to Jordan Peterson, which was really easy, that he didn't really understand what Marxism was all about. So why can't you do the same thing with identity politics to a certain extent? Right, he do- absolutely right. He doesn't uh, understand identity politics very well. Um, uh, but he must uh, misunderstand identity politics, I suppose, is the point, because the minute that he acknowledges its historicity uh, is the minute he loses his argument, you know, that that he needs an oppressor. And this is uh, this is Zizek's point, is that we have to get beyond politics where we need an oppressor. Uh, whether it's Jordan Peterson's perspective or the perspective of liberal multiculturalists, um, the reality is that both are operating on the strength of a, a position uh, that they are the enlightened, pure thinkers. Um, and if only the world would come to see the veracity of their perspectives, everything would be okay. Right. So Jordan Peterson wants us all to join with him in embracing nostalgic uh, views of personal responsibility from history, uh, from the past. And I think Zizek is trying to say, and this actually leads me to my next question, um, which is to sort of explore um, the role of expertise and authority in our society. You know, the, you know, it, one of the great criticisms that Zizek has is that communism failed. Uh, just as capitalism is failing today for the simple reason that communism failed to separate expertise from political power, right? So um, 
you know, we we um, need some kind of independent, neutral check, I suppose, on our democratic impulses. And this is, I think, a really uncomfortable thing for leftists to hear. It's, a, it's certainly going to be a very uncomfortable thing for Jordan Peterson to hear, I think, because he um, ultimately would like for his views to be correct and for a popular democratic movement to gather behind him and 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 carry his views into some kind of political power but um you know whether it's uh the left or the right today there's a there's a sense that uh, democracy is the way forward uh i think uh, certainly for the left we often talk about the need to democratize the economy, to democratize production, to democratize scientific expertise. But here comes Zizek in recognition, you know, having said all that, saying uh, freedom hurts and that freedom doesn't come to us spontaneously and that we do need, and I quote, a master figure to push us and awaken us to our freedom. Um, and so this is, you know, where we hear him cite Marx, from the Gotha program, where he, where Marx calls egalitarianism a bourgeois concept, so so Zizek is trying to get us to recognize the need for some kind of master, right? That that you know, not not to say that that should be separate from democracy completely. Um, you know, the Greeks, he argues in a footnote. Um, used to embed their experts in democracy by rotating them by means of a lottery. But but the point is, however we do it, however democratically we do it, we do need to have some kind of modicum of immunity for expertise, especially in the context of global warming, right? Um, for 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 communism to work in an era of complex technology and... The, the kind of environmental challenges and disasters we're facing, we're going to need to have some kind of independent scientific management of the commons. And I, I guess I'm just curious what you thought about that part of it. Well, as far as experts, like uh, there's one thing to talk about, like the global warming example, or mm. um, it, it's, it's weird to me to think of this as uh, a competition between experts and democracy, because I think what we're having with the with the example of global warming is you essentially have financial experts are more powerful than scientific experts. Yeah, exactly. And that's those are two experts arguing about something, and one has more power, doesn't care about other things, and so we're in the situation we are. If you wanted to talk about, and and I do think it's important to problematize democracy in some sense. Like, if not, I think you end up in that, like, you know, democracy becomes like that libertarian freedom that is just your sort of fix all to everything. You don't really understand how it works. And it's just like, hmm. oh, if we just had more democracy, that's all we have to think about. And that'll, that'll solve it. I don't think that's true. On the other hand, if we actually look at what's going to be the effects of global warming, for instance, those things are sure we need expertise to deal with them but it doesn't need to be run by experts the problem with global warming is it's going to start hurting people and it's going to start hurting specific people first specific people who don't have a lot of democratic input and i think that's oh yeah and i think that's the one of the biggest problems we have to get over i mean like we've said we've figured out what's happening and this is like you know in so many ways this is our and I think Zizek recognizes this. This is the crux of our era. Mm -hmm. we, we know things. We know there's things we need to do. 
but somehow it doesn't become a cause that we can all get around. We can all get behind. So, so what does that mean? And I think a lot of people that, that really push democracy and, and I agree sometimes that, that maybe they don't prob- problematize it as much as they need to, but a lot of people just push uh, democracy are saying, this is why you have people, if we're actually going to really be democratic about it, we're going to have to make changes because people who are being affected by this are going to have a voice and they're going to have power and they're going to stop it. Like for instance, in the Congo, you know, they, mm. if, if you really gave people, uh, you know, a real choice, are, are we going to spend all of our time, um, living under this this government that's very connected with US corporations and the a huge part is getting gold and minerals for computers and things like that i don't think they would want that especially if they had the information and i think that's where where people who get into democracy want to and i'm getting sort of off topic of the debate uh so i don't want to go too far in this but i think that's like for me that's really the push for democracy uh, and that's what I mean sort of by democracy. Yeah. So, so I don't always think it's, I think, but I think experts like, like juxtaposing experts versus democracy in that way is, is maybe not exactly the right way to do it because with global warming, I think it's it very much is two experts fighting against each other. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think, I think you've actually agreed with him. I mean, he's saying um, literally that uh, the problem that capitalism and communism both succumb to is the failure to separate experts from political power that you need to whether it's whether you live in a democracy um, you know an actual sort of advanced capable democracy or, or whatever you know you need to keep some kind of uh, separate function for expertise for science that that doesn't sort of make it science by plebiscite right that that are, are whether that's the plebiscite of the of the masses or the plebiscite of the economic elites or whomever right that there there has to be some kind of because like what do the i guess his point is so what do the what do the majority of us know about global warming you know nothing we're not we're just not able to have those conversations. We don't know about financial regulation. We don't know about um, global warming. And that that's kind of the challenge, right? That that, you know, we don't like to be told that, but that 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 is, I think, probably well, somewhat we know true. We, I mean, I think we know we, we generally, I guess everyone is who we're talking about. Yeah. No we definitely know that the we don't want the planet to get warmer. We definitely generally know what kinds of things cause it uh, specifically greenhouse gases um, so we know that we don't want the planet to get warmer and that we by burning fossil fuels we're causing that to happen or at least causing it to happen at an incredibly accelerated rate so I think if you put it up for a vote like let's say you had a nationwide uh, referendum even in some place as conservative as the United States and said like would you do you support you know constraining constraining the production of fossil fuels to stop global warming everyone would vote or everyone um, a more a majority would vote yes I think if you even put something as abstract and obtuse as the Green New Deal up for national referendum yeah. people would vote yes on it yeah, I think you, I because, think I agree. Because, but, but also uh, the Green uh, New po- Deal polling polling suggests that polling suggests that. So, 
I mean, I think but the Green New Deal is not the, a yeah. is not a uh, you know deep dive into the science of climate change. You know, like the the Green New Deal is an abstract set of principles that we hope to you know uh, change and, and introduce into law. Um, it's it's a constitutional type document. It's a set of principles. It's not necessarily to do with the minutiae of how we get carbon out of the atmosphere. Sure, sure. But but um, my, my point is more that um, uh, we know we have experts that have ideas about how to do this. We know that it's incredibly unlikely that their efforts would put more carbon in the atmosphere. Uh, it's more a question of what are the most effective uh, ways to do this or the ways that are, uh, you know, the least painful to our existing social order or something like that. Um, there's lots of room for debate between experts about that. But uh, in general, people don't need to know the minutiae of how climate change works to 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 have a democratic voice in what we do about it any more than people need to understand exactly how a computer works to be able to use a computer. The, and we never think about this with like the military or something, right? Like, right. like we understand what it means to send our military over somewhere to, to sort of do something. We don't necessarily like be like, well, if everyone can't understand the tactics, we can't do it type thing. Maybe that's a bad example because we don't really like we that don't stuff. Know. We don't want to know. We don't want to know. Maybe we don't want to know about this either. I mean, un unintended consequences there, but you know, we, we can sort of, we can't direct our experts to do stuff. I, I, I agree that like, if you have experts in charge, you're looking for trouble. Um, well, as a dogmatic follower of situationism, I distrust <laughs> experts. Yeah, that's right. what I was wondering. Yeah, actually, well done for of course, walking of course. Into the but you know, gym. like you, you know. Yeah, thank you, thank you. But you know, like I, I do. I think I agree with you, Jim. That like saying like the question of this, this gets this again. You're playing into these weird right wing ideas about populism mm -hmm. in a certain sense, mm -hmm. where 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 you say like, oh, populism. That's like mob rule. You know, where are the experts that are going to take us there? Like, we have all the experts we need. Guar guaranteed you can uh, do a poll at any any university in the United States or Europe or probably any con any country in the world. And you're going to have no shortage of people coming together, coming up and saying, like, here's a plan to, to, to address uh, global climate change. Um, we don't need a single plan that is the universal plan to put things in a in a sort of uh uh and or you know to to bring the word universal into it we're not talking about a universal plan that we all vote on also let's think about why people don't trust experts like in this country like is it because we're too democratic or is it because of how many times they've failed us like you look at the anti-vax thing like we can all be like is it anti-intellectualism yeah, but intellectualism isn't totally wrong in a lot of ways. Like Trump, Trump complains about the media all the time, and we can all agree that his fake news stuff is bullshit. At the same time, like uh. a lot of a lot of um, like liberals will like you know then they go whole hawk and say like oh the the news is an important institution of American society and it should be protected at all costs. And we all know like they're lying to you. You know, twenty thirty years ago, uh, most people on the left were like, man, it's terrible the way the news reports things. They're super problematic. You look at uh, 
like, okay, the anti-vax thing, we can all sort of say that, you know, you should be vaccinating. We can pretty, pretty much look that that's a problem if you're not vaccinating your kid against measles or something. At the same time, if we don't look at why people distrust their doctors, I mean, how is that confusing? Like the doctors had a huge part in one of the worst, uh, you know, drug epidemics that we're ever facing. I think they're absolutely related. The medical institution, we, the medical institution is one of the most corrupt and problematic institutions in absolutely. our country. It's also one of the more powerful. Absolutely. People aren't stupid. They know that now. Yeah. When it, when it, and of course, like when it, when it gets pushed out into like an anti-vaxxing is sort of like a weird bastardization of it because it's very sort of like, we're not supporting anti-vaxxers in any no, way. No, not at all. We're he's po- Jim's just trying to point out that flat Earth would almost be a better example. Like, and it's it's not it's not something of just think of all the, the military fact- conflicts that uh, we've been told we need to go into, only to find out later on that the experts that were cited, uh, the talking heads brought on to MSNBC and everything else, um, you know, were were completely wrong. You know. Uh, there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And more recently, Russia apparently was not trying to hack the election. You know, so that's, you know, that's another great example. You know, we're, we're constantly having experts invoked to justify various kinds of what turn out to later be corralling strategies on, on the behalf of political factions. It's, it's not, uh, for anything that people have become jaded with the idea of expertise. But I think this is kind of why Zizek is constantly kind of trying to get us to acknowledge that, you know, liberalism needs to fess up to its blind spot, right? That, that you know, it thinks that it's not the same as Trumpianism. It thinks that it's not the same as, um, you know, the, 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 the religious bigotry that persecutes any one of a number of groups around the world, you know, it, 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 it's, it's somehow enlightened, right? And, and what he's trying to sort of suggest, I think, is ultimately by narrowing the field of politics as it does, again, to the realm of ideas uh, and discourse, that it, it ultimately forgets that there are other stakes in the political world that are not of a identity or ideational nature, right? And this is, of course, the the famous humorous quip that he introduces in the debate where he talks about the Slovenian farmer and God grants him a wish and says, but look, I warn you, whatever I do for you, I'm going to do it twice to your neighbor. (laughs) And uh, the Slovenian farmer says, please take my eye. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I, and I think that's where C-Sex is his most strong. Like I'm, I've never, I've always thought that when he's on the ground of those types of critiques, he's very, he's very strong. And, and watching this debate, you know, it seems like, I don't know if other people felt this way or other people would felt, feel this way, but, you know, there's sort of, there's the, the Marxist take on one side that, that I think really can be radical and different. And then there's Trump, liberals, Peterson, everyone else are sort of in the same world as much as they have important differences that have, have real consequences. And I think he does a bad job of talking about those, but in this other way, there's, there's sort of the, you know, the world they all live in and the world that they support, which is essentially a world where uh, of, of, 
some version of traditional values, whether they're the sort of like, like more reactionary of Peterson, where he's trying to sort of like be like Daniel Borston or something and go back to something that never existed. Or if you're like Trump pushing for these traditional values of things like white supremacy or um, uh, neoliberalism and just pushing him to, you know, insane untold territories or all the people in the middle. And I think there really is a different side, which is, I mean, this is what I believe. And that's why I thought it was a really beautiful part when it's like when Peterson actually asks him like why he's a Marxist and, and he sort of talks about, you know, what those, those works that are really so important. And it's like what I see in Marx, it's like Marx offers at least to a certain extent, another way that's outside of those things. And I think that that was, that was the best part. And that is, you know, sort of reaffirmed why I, I feel as a Marxist, why it's so important to me as well. Yeah, that's good. Um, one thing, one thing about traditional values, um, you know, the way a lot of these uh, people construe the the air quotes traditional values is a privilege is privilege like to like most people in the world have their lives absolutely and totally um, governed by the needs of capital um, and and uh, to to a large extent maybe not fully uh, it's not like we're uh, you know robots but but uh, you know the values that we're able to hold, the family values, the traditional values, all of those values um, really are only able to be upheld by people that have uh, the ability to avoid um, the things like the fact that they have to work on all the holidays or they have to work, you know, six days a week to make enough money to buy medicine for their family, uh, their family members who they don't get to spend enough time with. Um, and uh, you know the uh, you know it's it's pretty obvious to anyone that's uh, that's sort of studied political economy at all that the the idea the Jordan Peterson loves the idea of the nuclear family. This is privileged. This is a privileged position too to have like to be a man that goes out to his job and then he comes home from work and his wife has dinner for him and she she sits next to him and doesn't eat while he eats and all this stuff is like totally born from actual material. Uh, accesses that most people in the world don't get. So, so I think um, not trying to push back too hard on this identity politics thing, but I think like it's important to remember that that the, the, that I that I that uh, in a lot of ways uh, a lot of the things we associate with identity politics aren't divorced from the actual material conditions that people live in. On the contrary, they're they're generated. These I these sort of. Uh, I, identities are generated by actual material conditions. But they're generated as identities, and that's the problem, right? They're generated as as um, kind of claims to a set of experiences that are shared by uh, a unique identity group, right? So we can start to talk, therefore, of the black experience, the gay experience, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what we learn in uh, many sort of analyses of the actual terms of the struggle of these movements is that they're much more to do with material demands than they are to do with any kind of recognition 
of those groups generally, right? I mean, to a certain extent, obviously, recognition is part of the demand. I mean, we we want to vote or we want to get married or whatever. But, um, you know, if you if you read accounts of how these struggles em- emerged, whether it's in San Francisco or, or elsewhere, um, uh, you, there's often... Um, a sense that the identity claim was made, you know, more for convenience. Uh, I'm thinking of Roger Lancaster's account of uh, the gay rights struggles in uh, San Francisco in the 1960s. And so these, um, so this sort of idea, I mean, a lot of the gay people in San Francisco in the late 60s, early 70s were not sort of thinking of themselves as gay first and foremost you know they were many many different things <laughs> you know they they became gay because it was a is a unique rallying flag around which they could articulate a set of material demands that were not being met in terms of their health in terms of their um you know housing in terms of you know, their access to other public goods and services there's a, there's a couple of things i want to say like one thing Charlie, it's interesting what you talk about um, the material demands, like you're saying about, like, especially the nuclear family. Right. Because I think you're totally right. But then it gets weird. Right. All of a sudden you're talking to Tucker Carlson about it. And he's like, man, capitalism is really putting a lot of pressure pressure on the nuclear family. Maybe that should be a reason to curb capitalism. But like we need to knock off like the stuff about, you know, the blacks complaining so much or something or gay people, but gay people is also a threat to the nuclear family. So we still need to like deal with that too. So it can get really dicey when you're in the context of talking with someone like Peterson or, or Tucker Carlson or something, right? It, it just puts these weird kind of, cause on the face of it, it's like, yeah, this is a great example. Yeah. People should have a nuclear family, be able to spend time with their family or, or whatever, but yeah, they should be able to spend time doing whatever the, whatever the fuck they want. Honestly. I mean, within, within, uh, obviously, but of course, that's not how like Tucker Carlson or Peterson would take it. So it's like all of a sudden you're on this great run where they're all like, oh, yeah, that's right. Capitalism, maybe it's a problem. But then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, so people should be able to like sort of live how they want. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like, no, they, they break down the family. That's all going to fall apart. Right. Right. Because so, we have we have a we have a, a, a natural hierarchy. Right. Of course. So, so, Nick, what you were saying, and I've, I've been kind of thinking about this as we were talking. Um, and so you're right. Like the material conditions often it, it, you come oh, no disagreement there first or, or have a I don't know if the material conditions come first, but in like a liberal, especially liberal identity politics, we'll say context, they, they tend to get they tend to get lost. And I think that's a huge problem. Right. Um, like the uh, we've seen great success in like the, the LGBT movements, but we've seen a lot more things like um you know, again, marriage and a lot of that was pushed for like tax reform, which has a material component and stuff, but it's, it's, um, we don't know. We, yeah, we talk a lot less about what you're talking about, Nick, like how it first started in in San Francisco. And it was very much about material conditions, but I don't think these things are like mutually exclusive and we can go way before, um, for example, we can go way before like the sixties or the rise of the new left. Look at something like the anti-colonial movements and how that, how that related in, uh, and you know, this is like Leninist times. You look at someone like Harry Haywood in the U S who's like really quickly, his argument is, is, he was a very diehard Marxist and he really believed that, um, you know, there was a universal proletariat. Absolutely. And I mean, he's going in, he's, he's trying to, 
organize unions, trying to get unions integrated, trying to just fight with unions against the capitalists. At the same time, he fully believed that in the current political climate, and this comes from the anti-colonial movement, like in the commentary and stuff, that African-Americans should have self-determination specifically, at least in certain parts of the U.S., basically considering it as a colonial movement with the idea that because of the racism that was ingrained, which sure maybe has, uh, you know, is completely con- connected to the, the capitalist mode of production. But he also believed that at that point, the only way forward was African-Americans needed to be able to politically control themselves and their communities without the interference of uh, just larger white society. And I mean, we can disagree or or not about that, but, but that's really clear. I mean, that's like the forties and stuff. He's writing that I think, or thirties, maybe even older. Um, So it's not like this identity politics is just a turn that happened in like the sixties or seventies or that it's mutually exclusive with like this idea of a universal proletariat. I mean, I think there's lots of examples and this is like why I, I worry when you just listen to Zizek in this debate or something, he's, he's like, he's he's again he's he's using that character of of political correctness or identity politics which i don't think deserves to be reduced to that character yeah i also think politi- political correctness means something slightly different to, Z- to zizek than it does to peterson it absolutely does and he did he really didn't do a good job explaining that which i thought was weird because and the reason people hate Jordan Peterson also is like because of his politically correct stuff like more than anything which is also why people don't like Zizek which he pretty much admitted so in some ways they're kind of weird people to have this debate I guess I want to sort of um, move to the the final question which is you know any final comments but if I can just sort of open that with a confession uh, on my part because um yeah, this is a safe space, Nick. Confess nice. away. You didn't watch the debate? You just read the Communist Manifesto? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I, all. I only just read it. Uh, you only got through but, rule two um, of Jordan no, Peterson's I, 12 I, um, slogans? I do, I do want to sort of say that I think Jordan Peterson made a couple of good points. Okay. And um, I actually think his good points were not made until the end. And of course... Uh, Zizek had a very good response, but there is a a sort of a a possibility maybe of listening with some compassion to Jordan Peterson towards the end of the debate, um, where he basically um, says that, uh, you know, and this is kind of in response to Zizek's well-timed quip that, like, you know, you you cannot tell someone in North Korea that their problems are going to be resolved by setting their house in order. And Zizek says, look, I get it, you know, um, I'm simply uh, talking about taking the beam out of your eye. You know, I guess that's a biblical quote, right? He's like, don't, don't take me for an Arandian, you know, a a libertarian. Don't take me for a devotee of Ayn Rand. Uh, I'm simply saying that you have to know yourself. You have to act uh, in a manner that's authentic according to your values, uh, the needs of your family and the needs of your society. So, I mean, I I guess I just want to sort of come clean here. Um, I, I, I don't know who can 
can deny that that sort of thinking is is possibly helpful for us all as individuals. And I mean, I guess I'm taking this out of the realm of politics, although there's some people that would say, of course, that the personal is always political. But so, for example, Jordan Peterson is a scholar of Carl Jung. And um, I know that you know, many people today take the Myers-Briggs style personality tests and Myers-Briggs was a scholar or a student of Jung. Um, and, and people find these tests to be tremendously useful in helping them to to live what we might want to call you know a more authentic life, perhaps even if not doing so perfectly. But they provide a number of questions to kind of give us insight into who we are. You know, what type of person are we and what's our truth? You know, what do we need to be happy? What should we be moving towards um, in order to be happy? Uh, now, Zizek's response is excellent to this, right? You know, he, 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 he's, he gets right to the point. He's like, okay, but even in these moments where you have um, these helpful guidelines and systems, toolboxes that we can refer to in order to help us live better lives, do please realize that that ideologies can creep in even there. So hence he recounts that Himmler kept a copy of the Bhagavad Gita and urged Nazis to read it so that they didn't lose their humanity even as duty called on them to do horrible things. And, and similarly, we can say Japanese Buddhism was invoked in support of Japanese involvement in the Second World War. So, you know, I guess my question is, you know, having confessed my sympathy to Peterson in making some of these points, you know, self-help, right? We obviously do need it, right? It's 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 there. There's a realm of our lives that's outside of the political, and um, it's a realm where we have to, as individuals, figure out how to live. That's right in a way that's right for ourselves, in a way that's loving towards ourselves. Um, yeah, we probably should clean our room. It may not be the primary task of our lives, but I mean, it's it as as a stand-in. It's 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 perhaps to be said that. It's a task of equal priority to the task of being critically engaged in society, right? And and I think this is why there's a moment in the debate that's very useful, I think, where, where Zizek says perhaps we should invert Marx's 11th thesis on Furbach. I don't know if you remember that, but, he, you know, of course, the, the thesis on Furbach is, is you know, the philosophers have so far only interpreted the world. The point is to change it. And, and Zizek is saying, well, yeah, but maybe we shouldn't be changing the world so much. Maybe the point is actually to interpret and to understand. And I just think, you know, that that can apply to ourselves as well as to our society. I think that's where Zizek sounds the most like Foucault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right on. Yeah, I totally agree um, with that. And actually, Zizek's whole thing about, you know, don't act, just think, uh, which goes really uh, into his I prefer not to thing is also very, very, in my opinion, reminiscent of Foucault, at least the what Foucault presents in the Chomsky, Foucault Chomsky debates. Um, I, 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 I guess it goes without saying to me that people should be whatever cleaning their houses. I don't know. I, I guess it's supposed to mean clean your room is supposed to mean more than just like have a clean house. Of course. But like, but like, yeah, you know, 
and Zizek will always say, look, it doesn't matter how you feel inside about you as a person, how good of a person you are. Uh, it, it, what you do is what matters because, you know, you can delude yourself all you want into how good of a person you are inside. If you're if you're a complete shit to everyone that you meet, uh, you're just a shit. So I so I guess I guess I'm like yeah I, I think that we do need to do what's good for ourselves and what's good for uh, our society and what's good for our family. I just think that those things are a lot more. If you're a Marxist, you think that those you have to acknowledge that 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 there is some sort of uh, unitary direction towards all those things. And it does involve changing the world. Well, I think at least on some level. Absolutely. And I think there's also like, I mean, Peterson's probably right that it seems like we have a whole self-care industry. There's a whole self-care culture that that yeah. probably isn't doing a great job. And also uh, maybe sometimes reverts to like a selfishness, sometimes, uh, sometimes, um, I don't know all, all the things that are problematic with sort of self-care, but, but I just see him as being, I mean, I don't know, like I don't subscribe to him. It seems like he, he makes some people sort of feel better or something, but, but again, if he's like, if his only way to connect the individual self-care with the group, which I think is really important part of self-care that any Marxist would know, like in his only way to, to connect those two things is through some sort of like traditional moralism, like he's wrong. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's also not probably the best, the best way to do self care, which is what I mean by wrong. And I think like he, he reminds me of something like, like Jordan Peterson in those moments reminds me of something like AA or something where like alcohol anonymous has helped a lot of people. And it was like, I, that's great. And it's not like I, I, I like hate it or something, but at the same time, like it's still the model we hold up like for addiction and stuff. Like it's still like, if you get in trouble with the law or something, they'll make you go to AA or something like that. It has terrible rates of success. I mean, it does work for some people, but it, it's not, it seems like we could do much better. And so I think that, that maybe Jordan Peterson does hit some nerve, which a lot of these people on the right, I think do of a need, but I don't think they're offering the solution. I had, I had another, uh, hopefully quick question. I don't know if it'll go anywhere, but, um, I was thinking when we were talking and this kind of goes back to earlier in our discussion when, um, we're talking about renunciation and how that gives you the ability to be sort of the universal, right, Nick? Do you remember that part? Yes. So I can't really put it together. I mean, it's a very personal thing, but I, I you know, we take that. And then when we, when I was talking earlier, I was saying that like, you know, you have Peterson, you have the liberals, you have, um, you know, conservatives and the all right. And they're all sort of, in my view, wrong. Um, and I was saying that, that, you know, one of the reasons I, I love Marx is because he, he does offer like a way out of it. I was wondering, you know, in a self critique as Marxists, do we understand ourselves as the universal perspective? And are we, are we able to, to support that and say it's right? You know, cause you know, to Peterson, it's all, you know, a bunch of different sects or something like that. But, but like, are, are we, are we right? Or are we even doing it 
to think of ourselves as Marxists as representing the universal? I mean, the, the honest answer to that question is is yes and yes. I mean, yes, we do uh, offer a universal critique, and yes, we think we're right. But the difference is, and it's the it's the important difference, right? Um, it's that we don't see the political as composed solely of ideas. Um, we're not. Uh, staking a claim that, uh, I mean, I, I, I suppose historically Marxism has clung to stark dichotomies of class enemies and things like this. You know, so so obviously there is a very strong uh, sort of tradition of you know political violence and Marxism and things like this, but the. Uh, what I would sort of cling to the idea of, of Marxism at its best is, um, you know, is not something we derive from Stalin or Lenin. Uh, it's going back to Marx himself and it's premised on the relentless critique of everything that exists. Um, and it's the promise that, uh, you know, if we can, uh, expand our assessment of the political domain from simply the realm of ideas into the material that we will have the possibility of a uh, society that is happier uh, where people don't have to turn to vulgar uh, ideas about each other in order to justify their existence and to feel empowered again, to sort of invoke the Gotha program, you know, to, to, to live a dignified life. Well, it certainly came off, if there's anything that made this debate seem kind of good, is if you wanted to take two thinkers and say which one is further along, more advanced about, you know, reaching these these really deep perspectives or a universal perspective, I mean, I do think that, that Zizek represented Marxism enough to say it's at least much deeper than what Jordan Peterson is peddling. Sure. Which I thought was, I mean, you it, know. It isn't the promise of communism that we can have these, uh, these uh, feelings of antagonism uh, towards our neighbor, but it doesn't mean that our neighbor shouldn't exist or that we shouldn't exist. Isn't that the promise of communism? I hope so. That we can, that we can, that, that like, <laughs> we can have vulgar ideas about each other without it, uh, without it like killing people. Except for the experts, because, oh, of course. They're done at this point. Yeah. Yeah. They're, I'll stop. Before <laughs> I get... <laughs> That's it. No, no. I think, I, I'm sorry to joke around, Charlie. But You're no, totally right. Uh, no. I think so. But, but, uh, but, uh, I, I have a final question, and I'm sorry. I, I really have to. Yeah, get going here. But my final question is this. So um, it, if you were to think of this debate as the first ever um, live performance of steamed hams, uh, which one do you think is Skinner, Zizek or Zizek or uh, Peterson? <laughs> uh, I mean, in my first thought, you, get, you, get where, you kind of see yeah, what I'm yeah. saying here. <laughs> it's tough, right? Which one is? At first, I obviously think it's Skinner or Peterson and Skinner. Yeah, I would. But I then would, think about it take, again. Yeah. But then think about it again. Oh, he's probably just inverting it. He's putting the steamed hams uh, <laughs> scene on its head. Yeah, where he's Skinner. It's gonna take. It's gonna take like. 
I don't know, a joint or something. And, and then we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll suss that out. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but yeah, that's, not, that's only a, that's only a semi joke question. I'm serious. Like, like, you know, <laughs> if you think about, if you think about the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> like which one which one of them presented to the other one a, a a seemingly ludicrous idea while the other one sat there and said okay 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 <laughs> if you put it like that it's hard to describe to, to, to tell which is wit which uh, who's who in that in that scenario yeah that's, and maybe that's, that's, that's what point. people wanted out of Zizek they wanted it to be like cultural Marxism yeah. In this day and age, <laughs> located entirely within the realm of your mind, or something like, and, and yeah. he's like, yes, and then he's like, can I see it? And, P- and Peterson's like, no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I think I think you might be onto something with the idea that 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 uh, Skinner's is Zizek, uh, yeah. because yeah. Uh, I, I, Zizek uh, does not defend Marxism. Instead, he sort of uh, says, "Oh no, that's just ideology, or that's just you know, liberalism." You know, it's it's. I don't know. Right, I'm, not, exactly. I'm not so good at the meme interpretation business, but I think oh, yeah. I, I don't know. It's not a. There's not. It's. It, it's not a. Really about interpretation. I just. Yeah, I like, just thought it was an interesting question, uh, because I do think that they. Uh, they did a fair amount of that kind of game. Yeah. Where the one person just says something. And the other person says okay, and they just keep going, and then finally the. How about political finally, correctness? That's a liberal person. That's a no, not Marxism. Yeah, exactly. That's like, a Utica. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. They kind of, they kind of like when we. I feel like at some point, at some point during the debate, when they really should have butted heads and crossed swords, they just, they just stop and say, okay, fine, and move on. Mm-hmm. Um, for I mean, whatever I, you know, I, again, like I'm. I, I don't hold this particular debate as uh, so so crucial or important. I just what, how do you rank it compared to like the Chomsky Foucault debate or something? I mean, obviously, like <laughs> I almost feel like they I, I, talk honestly, with each I, other more than they did on that debate. But like, I don't know. Like, I actually think that um, they. I don't know Chomsky Foucault debate. They do a much better job of uh, actually addressing their. There's the specific areas where they disagree in a sense. Okay. Like, I don't think Zizek or Peterson ever said, like, I actually disagree with that. Right. Which is like, is like almost the entire Foucault Chomsky debate is them saying that to each other. Like, one of them says one thing and the other one says, I actually disagree with you about that. And then every once in a while they agree. Well, Uh, I think Peterson's literally like 10,000 times the scholar of, or, uh, geez, Chomsky's like 10,000 times a better scholar than Peterson too. Oh, of course. I'm so, sorry. Like I didn't want to make so, it sound like there was no, some you actual didn't equivalency it, there. You didn't at all. Like, I mean, I'm the one who asked the question. Obviously like Chomsky and Foucault um, are. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're able to speak kind of, the same kind of, language kind of to each other more or less. Regardless of what you th- and regardless of what you think about them, they're really important to this, the sort of the, the Western left in a way that like Zizek obviously is, uh, but on some level, but, Peterson and absolutely he's like a punching bag and um mm-hmm. again once you see like the, his first 30 minutes it's like obvious why he doesn't understand anything have you seen the reactions like uh I, and I've only been seeing this again like on social media you've been sh- seeing screenshots of reddit of people being like 
that Zizek guy seemed kind of interesting or like Peterson didn't seem very good. Has anyone like seen something better than just like Reddit posts, like gauging the reaction of people? I don't know. And the, there's a, the Zizek subreddit on Reddit. There's probably like three or four people or posts a day that are like, I'm a J- Jordan Peterson fanboy. What Zizek book should I read? Yeah. I've been seeing that stuff, but yeah, who, who knows? That's I mean, pretty like, hard to quantify if that's, I mean, if you what were gonna if you were gonna quantify it, you would say uh, it's like twenty five people. <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, you're right. Too. Okay, so I don't know. Like, <laughs> uh, I've been getting into Jordan Peterson since the, this week. Uh, yeah, Darren's a big fan now. Um, at the very least, I think Zizek is going to have much better memes that come out of this than Peterson. It's going to be a lot of him slaughtering Peterson in the memes, which is what I've seen already. So yeah. you know that's pretty important online really affects material conditions. Well, that's a gimme though. I mean, like, like, (laughs) Oh boy. You know how much I love the men's rights pages. I I (laughs) cut Jim's mic. All right. Just kidding. Just kidding. (laughs) All right. I think we're finished, right? Nick. Yeah. Uh, thanks guys for, for, for joining in. This was a, this was a long one. Um, but uh, really that's how it always is when it, it's we uh, I think we were, stuff with us. I think it's safe to say we were looking forward to this for a long time. So thanks again, uh, Charlie, Jim, and uh, special thanks to Darren for producing uh, the episode. And uh, we'll be back soon with another fascinating episode of Fully Automated. Thanks for joining us.